0: Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Luke Arnold. Luke is an actor and director whose roles have seen him play a rock star and a pirate, as well as living in a Lazarus like town where the dead just can't seem to stay buried. Today, Luke is going to be joining me to discuss his debut novel, The Last Smile in Sunder City. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians and their ongoing connection to that land. Their stories are the original stories, and I pay my respects. Final Draft explores the best of Australia's books, writing, and literary culture, as featured on 2SER. Now, on the Great Conversations podcast, you get to hear all of the interview. The bits that get edited out, they're in there. You can discover more about the books that you love. In Sunder City, Fetch Phillips is a man for hire, but he doesn't work for humans, and sobriety is extra. Thunder City's a melting pot of magical folk, from fae to werewolves through to demons. But since the Coda, though, there's been no magic. Fetch is a gumshoe. With pretty manky old shoes, he needs a case. And his latest client? Well, he needs him to find a vampire. Join me as we discover Luke Arnold's The Last Smile in Thunder City. Now, my name is Andrew Popel, and I am... Very fortunate to be joined in the studio by Luke Arnold. Now, Luke's an actor, he's a director, whose roles have seen him play a rock star, a pirate, as well as living in a Lazarus-like town where the dead just can't seem to stay buried. Perfect proving ground, it seems, for the creation of his debut novel, The Last Smile, in Sunder City. So, Luke, first of all, thank you. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you f- so much for having me. Good to be here. Now, in Sunder City, Fetch Phillips, he's a man for hire, but he doesn't work for humans, and sobriety is extra. Now, this is a whole new realm for fantasy fans, and I thought maybe, start us off, can you take us on a tour of
1: Sunder City? Yeah, so Sunder City is set in a world that, you know, kind of has all the creatures of your typical magical land, dragons, elves, werewolves, kind of an amalgamation of stuff from... You know, different parts of folklore. Um, And then, uh, kind of, Sunder City is like the first metropolis of this world. So they've reached their Industrial Revolution. They've built a city that's kind of everyone comes together, where they're using these underground fire pits to fuel industry for the first time. And then about six years before our story starts, the magic dies. Uh, The humans try to tap their machines into this mystical river. It freezes. So now the elves are aging centuries and seconds. The dragons have fallen out the sky. The Wizards Can't Do Spells, and Fetch Phillips is, yeah, a man for hire on these streets. Um, I mean, the city, for me, it's a mixture of kind of Amsterdam, New Orleans, and a few other places I've visited thrown into. Awesome. Okay, so let's let's take that up. We've Mm -hmm. got this melting pot of magical folk.
0: You've got everyone from Fae to werewolves and demons, Mm -hmm. but since the Coda, Mm -hmm. which is the event you talked about, there's no magic. Now, before we get to the ramifications of this cataclysm, I really want you to talk to me about that decision. So, writing fantasy with all the fantastical elements bled dry, I mean, like, that's what the audience turns up for. That's that's kind of brave, maybe a crazy decision?
1: Well, look, I'm definitely not the first person in kind of all fantasy mediums to do the thing where the magic is gone, but I don't think, you know, it hasn't been done that often in specifically with those creatures we're familiar with, you know, and, and, and seeing what happens. And I guess for me, like, I you know, over the years since, you know, kind of in high school writing the first short story ideas of this that kind of mixed a noirish element with fantasy. I always liked those two genres. Um, The decision to have the magic gone in this way, you know, kind of really came when I started writing this version. Um, I think it was a little bit about, and kind of that unlocked the whole thing for me, because I'm not sure the original impetus, but for me it was a little bit like, that feeling like when we're kids the world seems magical and then we make these choices as we grow up and do these things to fulfill our ideas of what a grown-up should be, what a man should be, and somehow it cuts us off from this, um, you know, that, that kind of splendor that we saw in the world, you know, okay. felt connected to when we were younger. So that was a bit of the feeling, and then visually it just lets me go crazy. It makes it feel... It does make it feel different. Um, and I always like like... I don't know if you ever watched Return to Oz as a kid. Oh, now I was talking about some of
0: the Oz spin offs. Is Return to Oz the really creepy one with the wheelers? Yeah. It's creepy.
1: It's so creepy. And I think there's something about like, I love that feeling of it, though. This, like, because even though there are things in Return to Oz that, if you know, if you'd only seen the Wizard of Oz movie that aren't there, but they're twisted. And just that feeling of going into a world where we you know we haven't walked the streets before it's happened mm-hmm. but you just get a you get the sense of what was there mostly by seeing now the remnants and how people are dealing with it, it yeah it just seemed like an interesting take and one that i've Enjoyed kind of world building, two versions of this world at the same time.
0: Okay, so I, I want to come back to the code because the ramifications are fascinating for what you've done in the story. But a boring technical question mm-hmm. here: you're creating a new realm, and you know this realm of the imagination. It involves everything from the vast to the mundane. Mm-hmm. You need to know whether you know Fetch has got elastic sides or, or you know <laughs> laces in his boots. But we, we don't necessarily. It's a huge task to evoke this space in the reader's mind. When you world build, what are your concerns about balancing, say, exposition with just driving the plot forward and keeping that reader there? So, for me...
1: Uh it, it really all has to reflect on fetch. And that's one of the reasons because he has guilt about, he was somewhat involved in the Coda and, mm-hmm. and has guilt around that. You know, one of the good things about that, it means that everything he talks about when he's describing what's happened to this species, that particular person, this part of the world or this city, he has a, an emotional connection to. So hopefully mm-hmm. that helps it feel like it's, um, yeah, it's part of what he's going through, not just mm-hmm. an expedition exposition dump just for us. Um, And it's interesting with the first one. I do love, because I love those old Raymond Chandler stories and some of those detective stories, which really allow a certain amount of wandering and a meandering kind of quality, Mm -hmm. as long as there's actually something going on for our character and they're on the the trail of something. Um, So it was always a balancing act to go... Um yeah, what what does it feel like Fetch wants to stop and talk about? what you know, and what would be what would be triggering his mind to want to go down that road while also making sure it's you know somewhat connects to the mystery at hand. Um, and uh, but yeah, but I think it's so the, so they're the kind of things I think yeah, that the detective genre lets me do it a little bit. but and, and all around, I did a little bit of world building before, but most of it comes out of going, where's Fetch now? What do I want to confront him with? Mm. Okay, now I'll start filling in those bits of the map uh, around there. And to not get too ahead of myself, because kind of in each book, as hopefully do a bunch of these, you know, you want I want to bring things in that perfectly reflect, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you always want to put your character through the hardest thing. So go like, okay, well, if we decide that it's going to be, you know, goes or whatever the next thing will be, how mm-hmm. can I make that come in and reflect his mental state in the best way?
0: Absolutely. It must be a very different creative space for you though i mean many of the listeners are going to know you from your acting work you're bringing a character to life through your physicality your interpretation of a role but now you're on the page and you've got you've got a whole ensemble to bring alive how how did it change the way you work creatively are they are they in any
1: way related the, they are related in a lot of ways i you know they, i think that they come from the same place creatively yeah. um but it's i it's funny. I can't really do both of them in the same day. I find I think mean, you know the cerebral place where I go to for writing. It does not it puts me in a, a headspace that can't directly make me link to the somewhat kind of impulsive on the front foot front of your mind space that I need to be in for acting. Uh, I think you really need to be yeah when you are acting. You kind of want to be awake, ready to you know, and and kind of following impulses without going like, is that the right impulse? What is? What will that be? Does that mirror what happened several scenes ago? You know, you want other people worrying about that. I guess you're only, in, you're only in one character's head when you're yeah. acting. You're in your head. Yeah. yeah, and you're trying not to think about it, where when you're know, writing, it's like every part of it you want to be considering, you know, every you going, is this the best way this could happen? What does that mean for everything else? What's the reader going to think? What's this character going through? How will that affect the other character? So the it is like sometimes it is like especially in scenes where two characters are talking to each other it can be a bit like yeah just improing with myself um and so that definitely helps and I, I do think it may I think the the biggest help from acting into writing has been the seeing you know you know in a script whether people are just putting things you, you know the, the, those that dialogue's just there because we need to get to a certain point or we want to push this character in a certain way but that character's you know, isn't really fully given their own, you know, meat underneath. And so hopefully by kind of being an actor and working in those worlds, you know, with the supporting characters, I I kind of drop into their shoes as if I was playing them and try and give them a fully fleshed out story and wants and needs and all that as well. It's quite a visual novel but it, i also found it quite
0: visceral so i'm thinking of a particularly climatic scene mm. uh there's a lot going on it's very wet. i want i want to <laughs> i want you to know where we're at without yes, spoiling too much absolutely for the yeah uh did you find that those sensations came from the experience you have of you know kind of trying to evoke those sensations in roles
1: yeah I, i'm not sure really i do know what you like it is funny, like, yeah, going back through it, I do into different states, I guess, with the writing and have kind of allowed him, you know, I think when Fetch does occasionally get kind of emotional or really into something, he, you know, he, his, the prose can change a little bit. It can, yeah, can, mm. we can see a bit more sense and emotion and those things coming through. Um, yeah, I, I do think probably there is a part of me that in some of those moments I do a bit more of almost the performance art side of it comes back, you know, try and like get my thoughts and, you know, my, my typing to go with my thoughts and emotions and have it feel like one piece. Um, but yeah, and I do, I, I, that might be a side effect of, you know, having done some screenwriting and things, a bit of the visual side of stuff is that I do know, especially in this book, there aren't a lot of gaps in, you know, the same as when you're writing a screenplay, you kind of really want to know what, what the camera's looking at. And I yeah. do think there's a bit of that in the pros here that's kind of fallen over from that side of things.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I feel like, especially in noir, you don't have to say jump cut as much, but you mm. are knocking Fetch out. Yeah. And then yes. we, we, we come back to the story when he regains consciousness. Yeah. You've touched on noir. Now, Fetch, he's a gumshoe in the mm. Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler yeah. mold, and his client needs him to find a vampire. Mm. So, of all the dilapidated offices in all the post apocalyptic cities in all of the world, why'd you choose Fetch?
1: Oh, uh, saying what you why did I choose Fetch? as our well, what, yeah,
0: what does someone need to know that may about why Fetch is, is in this situation? He's, yeah, you know, he's he doesn't work for humans, sobriety's he, extra, he's hmm. a complicated man
1: in a complicated world. I, I think I've chicked yeah, a lot of cliches. and <laughs> and as do I in this first book as well. Because in a way, I feel like Fetch is the kind of guy who, you know, saw the equivalent in this world of like a Bogart movie, mm. and and had an idea of masculinity. And you know, we, without getting too much into his backstory, we see him kind of. I think he's always got an idea of what he should be and what the mm. and ha- what the right thing to do is, but he can't ever seem to do it. Mm. And I think. And it wasn't, and I think there's something that even since writing this the first time, it's getting more and more kind of in the news. And, you know, as a daily thing, I know lots of people are thinking about is kind of how do you do good in a broken world, Mm. especially when you feel like you've kind of done some things to contribute to why things are the way they are. And every day you do a little bit more that you're not sure if it's actually pushing things in the right direction, Mm. despite all your best intentions. And so there is a bit of a feeling that. I think when you open a fantasy book, a lot of people have a certain set of expectations and they think, you know, someone's going to... We're going to have our protagonist in a play. Someone's going to deliver to them, mm-hmm. you know, uh, some either an item or a mission, you know, that, and they're going to maybe um and ah about it for a few pages and then they're going to be off. And mm-hmm. then it's going to be them against the world. Mm-hmm. Um, where I feel like Fetch is kind of more like someone I associate with or that I see around me, dealing with the kind of internal struggles that I think us and our kind of modern world deal with. And so, playing him off against the expectations of a fantasy world, and particularly this broken one, I think is continually interesting for me. And I get to ask a lot of questions through him that I ask when I'm, yeah, looking around at the world now and going, well, what do we do when these kind of people are in charge? And these, we probably what we have to do to make a difference is a huge sweeping change of our lives that we go, is that worth it doing it individually? Do we have to try and, how do we actually get up every day and do something that makes the world better for the people around you, for people as a whole, for yourself and how possible is it to do?
0: A word we haven't used yet is hard boiled, but Mm -hmm. I mean, Fetch is very much the hard boiled. You can't say Raymond Chandler and and Dashiell Hammett without, and Bogie without thinking hard boiled. Uh, So, I mean, a, a couple of really important questions when it comes to hard boiled, uh, The first one, we've talked about Fetch's reflection, his ability to Mm self-reflect. And, of course, you know, go back a century when those hard-boiled authors were writing, that sort of sense of personal psychology wasn't there. You didn't see Bogie sort of doing the recrimination as much as Fetch does. Uh, What did that bring to the character for you when you think about, say, the earlier influences?
1: Yeah, I I do think there's... um there was really intentional to go a bit deeper into that kind of archetype. And I think, wh- I mean, one thing I, with the hard-boiled thing, I do think, especially in those Chandler novels, I think there is a real sense of romance there that mm-hmm. often gets lost in the, when other people redo that hard-boiled idea and the homage has happened, that they kind of take the surface level, you know, how, you know, Marlowe puts himself out to the world and often leave off that internal sense of romance that mm-hmm. I think was always there inside. And so I really wanted to, take that but also then really examine like I think you know for me a bit of why I love these characters when I first like loved those kind of Bogart films and stuff was because you know I think when you're a teenager we all really care what people think about us and can be so like you know just struggle with that anxiety of you know are are people judging me am I saying the right thing and just wanting to get to a point where we Mm. don't care anymore and seeing those kind of like just those yeah, those movie stars or those characters that are just that something terrible has happened to them and it's broken them. So they're like, mm. I don't care anymore. And they say the quippy lines and they can take the punches and dish it out. And like that seemed really appealing to me as a teenager. Go, God, I can't wait till either my heart gets broken or something terrible <laughs> happens so I can just be that cool. And but then obviously to get to that point, you know, to be broken in that way is nothing to be romanticized and mm. generally means that's a probably very damaged person underneath who has cut themselves off from certain things and isn't a full human being anymore and yeah. isn't cut because, yeah, they've, they've got trauma of some kind. And I think that's kind of going with fetch that he wants to present himself this way and mm. he does successfully, you know, certain sometimes, sometimes not so much, but actually to sit in and go okay, for someone this jaded and cynical and broken, you, you, the, I think the more cynical someone is later on, the further you go back, the more romantic and idealistic they must have been earlier. Mm. And so playing with that balancing act. And that's an incredibly important part of the
0: book, which we might we might sort of leave to the side for people to discover, mm. but when Fetch is able to fill us in on, uh, well, his tattoos, but that's actually yeah. his backstory. <laughs> the next most important question about Fetch... Mm. Uh, do you have a voice? Because a hard-boiled detective has has a voice. That's one of the things that is a thing about noir, is that they're telling the story in that hardboiled voice. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I uh, def- So, I did the audiobook for this, which should be coming ah. out soon. And, yeah, I've always thought of Fetch as American, mm-hmm. um, just because of, yeah, that hard-boiled detective and... And so I kind of, with the audiobook, had Fetch and kind of the other humans as American and then played everyone else with an English or European accent, okay. um, which kind of gave that little point of difference. So, yeah, um, but it's interesting. I had to kind of also lift it up for the audiobook because mm. I was, you know, I think I had a bit more of an alcoholic drawl and the Fetch mm. in my mind, but doing a whole audiobook like that will drag the whole thing out to be twice as long. So I had to wake him up a mm. little bit. But, um, but yeah, I I do have a voice that... You know, and the, and then we'll see, like, it, you know, I guess that's set for the audio book, and while that's the version for that, you know, hopefully this is the kind of thing that other, some other voices will get to come in, whether it's in, you know, TV or something else, and give them another voice as well. So I have mine, but I, the beauty of a novel is that it, it, can be open to anyone. I already know people have read it with other accents in their head, which is really great. All right, I tried, dear listener. You're going to have to
0: get the audiobook if you want to hear Fetcher's voice oh. in Luke's <laughs> voice. Uh, but now we, we have the pieces in place on the board. Uh, we know a little bit about what the world looks like. <clears throat> I want to discuss what the novel tells us, because two clear threads sort of ran through the action of the last mile in Sunder City for me. The Coda is this turning point in Sunder history. This is an establishing novel as much as it is anything else because this is a new world. And in the Coda, we have humans. They're jealous of their mystical brethren. They shut down the source of all magic in the world. That's that's a really establishment point. Mm. How it happens is... Read the book, dear listener. <laughs> so it felt like, firstly, it felt to me kind of like the the climatic catastrophe that we are constantly flirting with. Um, you know, we've talked about how Australia's been on fire. Um, various parts of the world just seem to want to fall off because, as a species, we we just are not taking responsibility for the impact that we cause. Was that in any way in your mind? Because, I mean, I just could not yeah. escape the coda being yeah. something in our future. Look,
1: it, it, it wasn't the intention behind it. Like, it's hard to avoid. it. And I think, yeah, my, as I kind of said before, my original ideas with it were much more about reflecting an internal, you know, mm-hmm. I- idea. But, of course, writing it now, it's... You know, as I'm your second one's finished, and you know, that we hope coming out hopefully sometime soon, getting on to the third more and more, it just is fuel for the fire, as far as mm-hmm. you know, right? What's happening in the world? Yeah, you as I said, you can't escape and you can't separate it. Um, and so, yeah, which I do think you know, those big questions are really being asked, and I think, and, and there's interesting where I, I think the first book has a little bit of like. You know, and I'm sure can sometimes frustrate some readers where you're going like, you feel like there's so much at stake still. Mm -hmm. Let's say this isn't in the aftermath or even the lead up. And, you know, you've got someone who's still kind of dragging themselves along doing a little bit to maybe, you know, Mm -hmm. try and make things better. But this is huge stakes. Yeah, I, I guess it's only as we're talking about it, it's interesting because it feels like... The, the difference i guess is that in this world there was a thing that happened you know we're kind of past mm. that and there are still people around and we don't know what it means but people have had to make a shift and so i guess one of the questions that happens in the book and continues on is like there are certain people who want to hold on to just want to go back mm. you know and that's and we really see that with one character in particular in the book of going like i want to get back to what was mm. And because of that, you know, we see the effects of what happens there as opposed to other people who are going like, no, like, that was great. Okay, things have changed, but I'm going to accept this change has happened and moved on. And I think that's where I see that most reflecting right now. Because mm-hmm. if we want to continue to have life on this planet, we've got to make some great shifts and a little bit of an acceptance of like, okay, things are like already things are different now. Mm. And if we need to sacrifice a few things and change our way of life to make sure, you know, human life continues on this planet, uh, then, yeah, we we need to look forward and we need to change. But there is a huge movement around the world right now mm. of people going, nope, you don't have to vote for us. I mean, you don't have to change anything. We're going to – that dreamy idea of a perfect world that you have in your head, mm. we're either going to keep it or try and go back to it. And I just think, yeah, which is a ridiculous idea that usually leads to destruction because you can't, once things are moving forward, you can't fight it. So, yes, that does influence the first book in some way.
0: Another thread that wove in with this is, in creating this climactic event, you also create a really clear blame narrative. We know who Mm. caused this to happen. And what the effect was, other than, you know, magic disappeared from the world, was it stripped the fae, the vampires, the werewolves, all of the mystical creatures of this huge aspect of their heritage uh, they they essentially I mean many of them just die but many of them lose what connected them to their their cultural being mm-hmm. um, because of the humans mm-hmm. um, and that starts to read to me like a, a really kind of like colonial reflection mm-hmm. and this idea of the way you know particularly anglo-british sort of colonialism spread around the world, and without get, you know, without getting too deep here, caused a lot of the the precursor events that have seen us where we are right now. What was on your mind there? Am I going way off base or is it just impossible
1: not to reflect that narrative in writing these days? Yeah. I mean <laughs> I look no, I think that is a huge part of it. Mm-hmm. In a way and that's you know, there are a lot of things. You know, I'm not somebody who knows how to write with, like, I want to give this message at the end. It's much more an explanation of I have these questions and I'm, you know, and I think Mm -hmm. it's interesting to explore them through this world. And that's definitely one that I don't know if I even know how to talk about all that yet, you you know, in because, and that's kind of, and I think that's reflected in fetching in this book. Mm -hmm. That is a bit of a, you know, and I think it is a really interesting time right now to know, yeah. I don't don't know how much, I can't be explicit about it, but there's definitely a kind of absolute reflection of that and that whole feeling of going, like, I am a big part of the system that Mm -hmm. is making things terrible and I don't know how to, like, be proactive about that, you know, where to be proactive, where to support other people when to step away. And, you know, the fact we've got one of the humans as the lead in this Mm -hmm. book, you know, as the protagonist of this book, with a sense of going, like, oh, I don't think, you know, with a sense of going, we probably need to maybe get you out the way and have these other better people do it. And that's absolutely all being explored in this. There's probably a lot of my own working out of those issues that go through that character that, and exactly what you're talking about. That was the brilliant thing because yeah. where that all culminated for me was uh, Fletch, uh, sorry, Fletcher's
0: self-loathing yeah. mm. and recrimination because we see at various times this be a spur mm-hmm. to action but then also a huge break on action where he has to look at, the way he has been feeling, and the way that anger has he thought fueled him mm-hmm. may actually have had a whole nother um you know effect on what he was doing and I think that speaks very much to who we are as readers you know picking up
1: last smile <laughs> yeah. in twenty twenty yeah i look, I think it is. It's impossible to avoid. It. Like, I'm writing in two genres mm. that are that have been around forever, generally very white male genres, you know, mm. both the kind of noir detective story and fantasy, you know, that kind of European fantasy with that stuff. Um, and there is so much where, at the moment, there's great things happening in fantasy. We have people like, you know, N.K. Jemison and, you know, and Tade Thompson, these other great, you know, writers of color coming in and blowing fantasy in all different directions. Um, so I do think it is interest, you know, and I kind of know, well, here's my little thing right now is, you know, backwards in some ways, but maybe a bit, what I'm trying to do a little bit is an explore like, okay, me, you know, white male me writing in this world with these genres, but kind of working out how to play my part in that in some ways, mm. I think does reflect in there. Well, This is not all exactly what it's about, but there's no way that isn't bleeding into there as, you know, you just work out how to be a good person you know in a world that we've been a part of damaging that is absolutely not all it's about uh
0: dear listener <laughs> yeah. i have i have had a deep dive there with luke i am speaking with luke arnold about the last smile in Sunder city it's his debut novel in a fantastic new realm uh, he's already teased a couple of times that uh there's going to be a series of second books that's written mm-hmm. uh, third books on the way um so I mean, uh, there's a missing vampire that we barely touched on, but I think let's let's end on a fun note. So sounds good. All right, last smile. It's been greenlit. It has at least the budget of a you know decent Doctor Who episode. <laughs> Which character are you playing and why? Ooh, okay. I... Fetch, Fetch gets knocked out way too much.
1: Like it'd be dangerous <laughs> for you to pick him. Ab- no, absolutely, and I think there's. Look, if I got that opportunity to have it, you know, brought to the screen in any way, that mm-hmm. there's no way I'd be able to release myself into that role mm-hmm. and do it. I'd be all thinking about, like, I'm going to, sc- you know, be, screw that up. So it'd be fun to come in as someone else. I feel like in the first... Oh, I'm... There's, like... If it's just if we're doing the first one and it's not going to continue anywhere else, and you're you're wearing so much makeup that even yeah, if your character yeah. dies, oh, yeah, you could come anyone. back in the second. Oh book. yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. So look, maybe I'd be um, the intruder uh, fly, who, which is which, fetch starts calling flyboy, who's the kind <laughs> of uh, he's a messenger from the vampires. Who yeah, we won't say much more than that. But I like, I, some of my favourite scenes are with him cool. in there, um, which I think would be a good. Yeah, that would kind of be a fun one to come in. Not the coolest character, but uh, I like some of those scenes and some of that dialogue, so that would be all right. Absolutely. Okay.
0: <laughs> Luke Arnold's Last Smile in Sunder City is the novel we are discussing. Luke, thank you so much for taking the time to come into 2ICR. Thanks so much for having me. Really great chat. Cheers, man. That's it for this great conversation with Luke Arnold. Luke's debut novel is The Last Smile in Sunder City. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway studios in Sydney, Australia, and the show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. There are two new podcast episodes dropping this week, so if you want to make sure you get them both and every future episode, well, hit subscribe. Hit subscribe, maybe give us a review, so you get two new podcast episodes, but it helps other people find them as well. If you want to keep up with us too, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, just look for at Final Draft 2SER. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. And as always, I wish you happy reading.